Um, these ragmen would basically go downtown and start crying out in the middle of the street, rags, rags, and people would come out with, <clears throat> like villagers and people in the town, would come out with old clothes or rags or medals, newspapers, pretty much anything that they didn't need anymore that was junk that could be reused, and the ragman would give him a little money for it. And that's basically what the ragman's job was. He would buy back these seemingly old and useless items, um, and he'd take that junk, and he would basically give the seller something more useful. Could we call them new rags for old ones, so to speak? These ragmen, these ragmen, you know, they're kind of ahead of their time. Now, you know, now we, we have a, the green movement in our, in our culture, which is great. It keeps our, it keeps our country clean um, and um, free of pollution. But they, these, were, these were the redemption centers of the day, the recyclers. Um, and I, I couldn't help but think when I was hearing um, and reading about this a little bit more, just about the progress of life, my own life in general. Um, that we, we dress ourselves, right? We, we set agendas for our life. Uh, we have a certain purpose. We have certain goals. But these, over time, get tired and old. The things that we thought were new and bright and fresh and clean, that we would love forever, so suddenly start to bore holes in them. It's not the same being a lawyer or a doctor. It's not what I thought it was. Marriage isn't what I thought it was. Right, And what's more than that, unexpected tragedies and traumas, and these are the clothes we start to put on in life. As life goes by and life um, continues, we start to bear more than just like, not just the simple disappointments, we thought this would be better, it's not as, as good as I thought it was, but now tragedies start to happen to us. Death, divorce, loss. We set out dre dressing ourselves with all this optimism, about life. We pursue love, we pursue purpose, we pursue all these different things. <clears throat> but somewhere along the way, we start to realize, if you noticed what it said in our text, that it is an empty way of life. It's an empty way of life. So we just sort of trudge on. We don't really know what to do about it, so we just sort of trudge on in our old, tired, and tattered rags. But friends, what stands in our midst is the gospel of Jesus Christ, the good news that offers us something new for what is worn out in our lives, for what is desperate. He gives us an exchange, and that's what I want to talk about this morning, an exchange for our empty way of life for a full way of life. And I want to see this in our text. We find it <clears throat> in three ways, in priority, in payment, and in exchange. These three ways we see in our text that God brings us out of an empty way of life to a full way of life in priority, payment, and exchange. So let's look at the priority first. It says, it's said in our text, if you recall, since you call on a father who judges each, each person's work impartially, live out your time as foreigners here in reverent fear. You know, we all have a belief system about God. You say, well, I don't believe in God at all. Well, that's a belief system about God. It's a, an, an atheism, right? It's an atheology. So we all have this belief system about God. Oftentimes, our belief system about God is really formed 
through our families of origin, um, through our culture. Our ideas about God generally reflect our culture's values. So in the West, God is love, because love is a value in the West. In the East, God is judge. He's just, because justice is a value in the East. You see, oftentimes our culture really will define what we believe about God and who he is. In this short verse, God is described as father, judge, and king. Father, judge, and king. You see, um, it's very, it should be obvious to everyone, and including, to my, including to me, that I need more than just what I think God might be like. Because I'm not God, right? You guys know that. <laughs> Neither are you. And if that's true, then I need more than just what I think might be true about God. I need God to reveal himself to me. I need God to display it to me, to speak it to me. And what we have in the word of God is God actually speaking through the prophets and apostles millennia ago to us concerning who he is and what he's like. And in this verse, God is described as father, as judge, and as king. And all of these titles, so to speak, will point to the priority that God has or should have in our life. He's directly called father in our text, since you call on a father. You see this? He is directly called father to all who call on him. So when we call him in repentance and faith, um, to trust in, uh, through Jesus Christ and our faith in Christ, God is described as our Father. Now, you guys all have human fathers. You might not know them, but I'm pretty much biologically sure that you have one somewhere. Our fathers are our source of life, aren't they? Our fathers are our source of wisdom. They raise us. They teach us. They keep us safe. They keep us secure. They, they grow us up. We need them. Not only that, not only do we need them, but they are our origin, aren't they? We came from them. We would not exist if it weren't for them. So there's a priority that our fathers have in our lives and our mothers too. Our human fathers, again, are a source of life and wisdom. We bear their very nature. Now, you, this might be a bad thing for you to consider this, depending on the kind of father you might have had. You might have had a good father or a bad one. But scripture describes God as the father we all should have had. When anyone trusts in Christ, they receive a new father, the father. And such, the Christian acknowledges that they need God, that God is a priority, that they come from him, that we would not be here without him. We would not have life without him. We would not have wisdom without him, just like we would not without our earthly parents. You, see, you follow this? So when we, when we trust in Christ, we receive the new father, the fathers that our fathers should have been to us. He actually is. And he is our beginning and our ending. So to know God the Father is to know ourselves. You see that? To understand God is to understand yourself, to know who you really are. When you know God, you know you. See, so God is a priority. That's what I mean by priority. <clears throat> God must be priority. He must take first place in our souls 
if our souls are to thrive. You see, because men are not your origin. When I say man or woman, like romance, love, that's not what created you. That's not why you're here. That's not who you are by nature, you see? And neither is that true of friendships or work. These are all important things and wonderful things, but something is missing, therefore creating an empty way of life when you don't know who God is, when you haven't prioritized him, when you haven't put him first. But he's not just father. And I know that sometimes our modern minds sort of trip over this, but God in our text is also judge. Since you call on a father who judges each person's work impartially, that means we don't get a pass because of the color of our skin or how much money we make or how important we are or think we are. God judges each person's works impartially, without partiality. So yes, sons, if you've trusted in Christ as Lord and Savior, yes, you are sons. But that doesn't mean that it doesn't matter how we live or what we do. A Christian, according to Scripture, can be like a sow. You know what a sow is? That's a nice word for a pig. Sorry. I'll look at myself on that one, okay? A Christian can be like a sow in 2 Peter chapter 2 after having been washed, returns to the mud. Galatians chapter 7, do not be deceived. God cannot be mocked. A man reaps what he sows. Whoever sows to please their flesh from the flesh will reap destruction. Whoever sows to please the Spirit from the Spirit will reap eternal life. So according to Scripture, choices matter to the impartial judge. So he's first relationally as father, but he's also first morally. What we do, the decisions we make, the choices we make, they bite back. And isn't that, we can not like that, we can deny it, we can say, oh, this is, I don't like this ethical kind of moral stuff from God. But isn't it true, take God out of the equation. When you know you do something you shouldn't do, doesn't it bite back? Isn't there a law inside of you, in spite of what you believe about God, that sort of rules? And you can try to deny it, you can try to pretend like it's not there, and think, oh, I'm free, I can do what I want and be happy. It's just not true. And we all know it's not true. I believe that that's not true because there is a God who is altogether righteous. In other words, the reason we have a moral code in us is because God does. And if he's our father, if he's our origin, then we inherit it. Does that make sense? Okay. So God is not simply creator in, in Scripture. Um, excuse me, he's not simply father in Scripture. He's also an impartial judge. But finally, this, this one might um, sort of be hidden a little bit. God is king. God is king. In our Scripture text, we are called foreigners. Christians who believe in Jesus Christ are called foreigners in the world. You know what a foreigner is? A foreigner is someone whose citizenship is in another country, right? So you're here as a citizen from somewhere else. Perhaps you have a green card, um, you're here for school, whatever it might be. The fact is that you have a citizenship somewhere else. Christians are called foreigners in our text, whose citizenship is in heaven. 
The Christian citizenship is in heaven where Christ is king. You see? If we are citizens of another country, the ruler of that country, the authority, the sovereign, is Jesus. It's God. So God is not only father, he's not only judge, but he is also king. He rules over all. He has absolute authority. The king who rules and reigns over all creation. So God isn't simply just creator. We might, we might reduce, kind of like in our modern minds, we might reduce the idea of God or the potential of God as someone simply who maybe created things. We don't really know who he is. We don't have relationship with him. We don't even know if he's even a person. Some force, some power, that's who we define as God, started everything, created everything. That's pretty much all I'll admit to. But according to scripture, God is more than that. He is personal. He is relational. He's a father to his children. He's also judge. He is the source of right and wrong. But finally, he's also king. He's the ruler, the authority over all things. And all of these titles of God point to his priority, his authority, his sovereignty. Friends, our hope, our life, and our soul health are vitally linked to coming to terms with this. You see, we can resist it, but we will eventually make something else a father something else a judge, and something else a king. It might not be God, but it will be something. It might be your mom's virtues. Maybe that's your judge, her moral code, whatever, whatever it was. Maybe it's a professor's virtues or moral code. Maybe, maybe your king, your ruler, your chief authority in your life is love. It's romance. If you have it, the king is happy. If you don't, he's not. Right? Maybe there's another father in your life. Another person that you strive for their affirmation. You see, friends, we're all going to fall under this. The question is, do you want to fall under a created thing or under the real God, the God of heaven and earth, the one who is meant to be all of these things for you perfectly? You see what I'm saying? So, friends, we need to make, if our souls are ever going to not be empty, but to have full life, we got to come to grips with who God really is and who he said he is. Amen? God is our father, is our judge, is our king. The emptiness that is the result of misplacing this, coming, other, coming under other father kings, carries certain burdens, an empty life, deaths of sort that need to be exchanged. You see, friends, when we misplace this, when we fall under other fathers, other judges, and other kings, there is a brokenness that we carry. And because of that brokenness, we need an exchange, and we'll get into this. Let's look at the exchange now. You were redeemed from the empty way of life handed down to you from your ancestors with the precious blood of Christ. And again, what is that empty way of life? It is a misplaced priority. It is worshiping another father king, you see? <clears throat> but you were redeemed from the empty way of life handed down to you from your ancestors. Thanks, Dad. We learned it from them. With the precious blood of Jesus, a lamb without blemish or defect, he was chosen before the creation of the world was revealed in these last times for your sake. 
Through him, you believe in God who raised him from the dead and glorified him, and so your faith and hope are in God. Now follow this. The empty way of life that is the result of a misplaced father king ruling our lives results in three things. So when we misplace our priority, we come, on, come under another priority, another father king, three things happen to us. Guilt, death, and shame. Guilt, death, and shame. That's the empty way of life that we carry no matter what as long as we have the wrong father king. Okay? Guilt, death, and shame. Guilt is an internal sense, an objective reality that we are guilty. We know in our gut, without anyone telling us, that we broke a law. We don't know what that law is. We don't know who said it. We don't know if God said it, country said it, mom said it. We just know that there is inside of us an internal conscience that we have broken and we are guilty. Isn't that true? We don't like it. I don't like it. But it's true. And I've said this before to you, so some of you bear with me. You've heard me make this illustration You don't believe in the Ten Commandments. Okay, fine. Let's put those over here. Make your own. What's your Ten Commandments? Right? Don't wake up late every day. Right? Rule number one. You know, that was given to us from our parents. If you you sleep in late, you're lazy. Right? That's rule number one. Don't sleep too long. Rule number two, work hard. Rule number three, don't take money from the government. Right? Rule number four, you you name them. List your ten. And at the end of your life, if I was to judge you, If I was your judge and I simply judged you on your commandments, how would you do? You'd probably have broken every single one of them, wouldn't you have? And just by your own law, you're guilty. Imagine, just pretend with me for a moment, if there is a God, if we can't keep our own rules, how will we fare with him? You see, friends, we are guilty. We know we're guilty. And you will never find life, and I will never find life until I can finally just admit that. I finally can just say, yes, I am a sinner. I have sinned against God. There is a God, and he is judge, king, and father, and I have sinned against him. You see, the emptiness, the brokenness, the pain that we carry often comes because we're not guilty of anything anymore. The only thing that Ravi Zacharias said this once, the only thing that we are in our modern minds is that we're guilty of guilt. We're not guilty of sin. We're guilty of feeling guilt. That's what the world tells us today. But if we, and what, so what do we do about that? We can't do anything about that. But if we're guilty of sin, there's a Savior. There's someone who died for it. There's someone who can remove it from your life, forgive you for it, you see? You see, Jesus, in our text, was without blemish, without spot. He was pure. He was without sin. He is the only one without a guilty conscience. The implication is that we do have blemish. We do have sin. The emptiness that we carry, the brokenness because we live on other... under other father kings, is that we're guilty. The understanding that there's some objective law that we have willingly and knowingly broken is our guilt. Again, like I said, we, we might not understand this to be God's law, but maybe perhaps just our own conscience. You know that Romans 2 affirms this. This is a place in the New Testament. It says this in verse 14, when Gentiles, that's people who are not Jews, When Gentiles who do not have the law, God's rules, right? Ten commandments, think of that. When Gentiles who do not have the law 
They do by nature things required by the law. Isn't that interesting? Why do people get married that don't have Bibles? Why do people feel like they shouldn't get divorced that don't have Bibles? Or commit adultery? You see, that's what this is saying. They do the things by nature, things required by the law. They are a law for themselves, even though they do not have the law. You see, they don't have the Bible. That's what this is saying. But they still have what the Bible says in their hearts. They show that the requirements of the law are written on their hearts and their consciences also bearing witness and their thoughts sometimes accusing them and sometimes defending them. And isn't that true? You might not know a lick of scripture and sometimes your own conscience will either defend you or accuse you. Isn't that true? You were wrong, dude. You shouldn't have done that. And we, we know that we're guilty. Or I'm like, no, no, I was, I was right in this. Our conscience defends us. I did the right thing. We all go through this. That's what Scripture's saying. But the nagging sense of guilt, though, when we fall short of this law, contributes to the empty way of life. It follows us. We know for certain that we're guilty. What do we do with that? You see, what we normally try to do is we try to start getting nice, right? We go to old folks' homes and give them pumpkins, right? Why? Because, you know, I was kind of a jerk 10 years ago, and I need to start being nice. That's what we start to do. What do we do about this empty life, though? We know as good as we can be that we're still guilty, that somehow the pumpkin didn't cover it. We still carry it around. So guilt, number two, is death. We believe in God, like our text says, who raised Jesus from the dead. Death is a problem. Death is a problem in your life, isn't it? You might not think about it much, but it's coming for you. It's come in other people's lives around you, hasn't it? It's come in other forms. Death of a relationship, death of a job, death of health, right? Death of, death of maybe usefulness, maybe you've, you've been in an accident and you can't do the certain things that you, you used to be able to do. It's like that woman in, in the, that Seinfeld, Seinfeld episode, what can I do if I can't play tennis? <laughs> right? She hurt her arm and she can't play tennis anymore. There's all these sorts of deaths that, that go after us throughout life. It's a prowler that contributes to our sense of an empty life, doesn't it? There's, it's this outside force that we have absolutely no control over. And we also know it shouldn't be here. It's an invader. We know that it's, it, something happened to us, to the world, to us human beings, where now we have to experience this death, and it should have never been here. We kind of know this intri- intrinsically. The Bible says the reason it's here is because of sin. The wages of sin is death. It's the curse of a, it's, the, it's the, the product of, of being broken and being in a broken world. That, so the death of relationships, of usefulness and work, and so many other things, the ultimate death being the, what the Bible calls a second death, a death you die after you die, a final separation from God forever. Some people call this hell. Scripture at times calls it hell. It's imaged in different ways in Scripture with fire, with weeping, with all these different things. 
Can I just say very simply, it is a final separation from the loving presence of God. It's a separation. We carry that around, so to speak, now, I think, in certain ways. All the things we sort of presumed would give us life fall short and we march on toward death in this empty way. And finally, the last burden that we often um, carry with us in, a, in a, what the Bible describes as an empty life is shame. Shame, as you might know, is felt, and it's either deserved or not deserved. It's to fall short. We, we fall short in certain ways, and we have that kind of, maybe it's not even just to fall short, but just you know, who we are by nature. Um, it's basically some inadequacy or perceived inadequacy displayed, on, displayed to other people publicly so that we feel shame, embarrassment. Now, some things you shouldn't be ashamed of. The color of your hair, the lack of your hair, right? Families of origin, skin color, social class. We know that there are certain things that we shouldn't be ashamed of, but you know that all of these things somewhere in this world and in history have been ashamed of those things. The amount of money they have or don't have, the color of their skin, their nationality, for some has caused shame, and we know that those things shouldn't cause us shame. But other things we know maybe should cause us shame, a drunken fit, right? Some kind of drunken rage, an accident that we caused. We think about what we did, and we kind of carry that. Maybe a blind rage, we just lose it one day. In our text, Jesus raised from the dead and glorified. Did you see that in our text? He's raised from the dead and glorified. He's applauded. Jesus Christ is stripped down naked, inside and out, and all he's worthy of receiving is accolades, awe, and praise. You see, friends, if that were you and I, you and I all know that's not what we deserve. And that's why we feel a measure of shame. But Christ, when Christ is put in full view, because he's innocent and completely righteous and without sin, he gets full glory. He gets applause. Yet we oftentimes, because of the lives that we have lived, carry around guilt, death, and shame, an empty way of life. So what's the antidote? What do we do about it? Now that I've fully and satisfactorily discouraged you all, what do we do about this? I hope that you, that you know, too, that I'm not just making this up. I hope that you know that this is just the experience of life that we all come under, and the scriptures describe to us why. What's the antidote? How do we exchange this emptiness for a fullness? So let's look at, finally, the payment. For you know that it is not with perishable things, such as silver or gold, that you were redeemed, but with the precious blood of Christ, a lamb without blemish or defect. I want to focus in, I want to zero in on this word redeemed. If we want guilt exchanged for righteousness, if we want pain and death exchanged for life, if we want our shame traded for glory, what's the payment? What do we do? Because we all know 
that we've fallen short of these things. So how do we get out of it? What's the payment? The Bible says that only redemption gets you out of this. Only redemption. And that is to be purchased. Only redemption. The Bible says that all are in this this condition and that if you want to be rescued from this emptiness, you need to be redeemed. The word redemption in Scripture means to be purchased out of something. And that something, the imagery in the Bible, is a slave market. It's a market where you, you carry these things that we described. There's nothing that you can do about it. That's what a slave is. A slave is subject to the will of a master. There's, you can't break the chains. So you need someone else, a redeemer, to come and to purchase you out of that condition. That's what the word redemption means. It means to be purchased out of the slave market of sin in Scripture. You are purchased out of this. The payment, so what's the payment price? Where if we're kind of metaphorically kind of trapped in this, this guilt, death, and shame, how do we break the chains? What's the payment? How do we get out of it? Well, the payment price in Scripture is the blood of Jesus. So who is Jesus, though? Let's describe the Redeemer. He's like the guilty, so he's human, right? He's innocent when we're guilty. He bears the penalty we deserve, which is blood, death. It's an exchange. And not only this, he is able by his sacrifice to continue that redemption. So in other words, you don't end up back in the slave market of sin because he didn't pay enough money. You follow me? So it has to be a, a, a gift that actually is worth rescuing you, able to rescue, fr- rescue you from it permanently. And what is this disqual- this disqualifies all of us, does, doesn't it? Friends, I am guilty. I can't do this. I am not innocent. And if, even if I were, if I died for you, I'm just a man. So it disqualifies all of us. From, according to Scripture, we need a substitute that is like us, that is innocent, who will die for us in our place, and whose sacrifice will always count. That's why the blood of Christ has said it's more precious than gold or silver. It does not fade. The redemption paid for you lasts forever. This is Christ, the Lamb of God, who became a man, who became like us, who was yet without sin, according to Scripture, so that he was without spot or wrinkle, so that he could, the innocent one could die for the guilty one. Does that make sense? So the exchange happens. He dies in our place, whose death always satisfies the righteous expectation of God in heaven. Because he's not just God, he's not just man, he's the God-man. Listen to Hebrews in the New Testament. This is a little lengthy, but follow this. For this reason, Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant. A mediator is someone who reconciles two parties who are in opposition. God and us. Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant, that those who are called may receive the promised eternal inheritance now that he has died as a ransom. You see, redemption, the ransom price. To set them free from sins committed under the first covenant, which is the law, God's righteous and holy expectations. For Christ entered heaven itself to appear for us In God's presence. We were not allowed to be in his presence because of sin. But Christ appears for us 
in God's presence in our place. Nor did he enter heaven to offer himself again and again. He didn't die over and over, in other words. The way the high priest enters, this is a reference to the Old Testament. Otherwise, Christ would have had to suffer many times. But he has appeared one time for all to do away with sin by the sacrifice of himself. You see this? In the Old Testament, a lamb every year was brought into the presence of God and sacrificed. What this is saying, Jesus, the lamb, the one that those, all those other lambs pointed to, only does this once because he is the God-man. He died for us in our place and saves us to eternal life. So Christ was sacrificed once to take away the sins of many, and he will appear a second time, not to bear sin, but to bring salvation to those who are waiting on him. Friends, Christ is the substitute. He purchased, purchased us out of guilt and death, and he took that guilt and death on himself. He is the Redeemer. His blood is the purchase price to save us from the slave market of sin. He is the propitiation. That word means he satisfies what, God, what we owe God. He satisfies that demand. He's the mediator. He reconciles. He creates peace in our estranged relationship with God so that our empty lives can become full lives. He takes our sin and we wear his sonship. Isn't that fantastic? He takes our sin. We wear his sonship. He takes our empty way of life, our guilt, our death, our shame, and he gives us his full life, his innocence, his life, and his glory. That's the exchange. And when you come to Christ by repentance and faith and trust him, that's what you get. Friends, every stripe on his back was my stripe. You see, I should have got that stripe. Every punch, every strike should have been mine. But he took it for That was my strike. That was my punch. Every insult, each nail in his feet and, arm, and hands, every thorn on his head, those were my thorns. Those were my nails. That was my spear that pierced his side. Those were my insults. I deserved all that. But my Christ, he took it for me, and he gave me his life. That's who Jesus is. You see, but there's more than that. Because the pain of your divorce, that's his pain now. You see, the pain of losing your child, that's his pain now. The pain of losing your use usefulness, that's his now. The loss of your health, all of these things, they're put on him and the glorious exchanges you are promised eternal life and love and happiness and glory forever with Christ in God's presence. Isn't that amazing? He takes those things too. I want to read for you a story. It's kind of lengthy, but I'm going to close with this. Okay? Rule number one in, um, in homiletics, that's preaching, is don't read long things. Okay? <laughs> It really is. But I'm going to break that rule. But I'm going to ask you to really try to focus because this is very powerful. It's called The Ragman by Walter Wangerin. It reads, <clears throat> I saw a strange sight. 
I stumbled upon a story most strange. Like nothing in my life, my street sense, my sly tongue had ever prepared me for. Hush, child, and I will tell it to you. Even before the dawn, one Friday morning, I noticed a young man, handsome and strong, walking the alleys of our city. He was pulling an old cart filled with clothes, both bright and new. And he was calling in a clear tenor voice, Rags? Ah, the air was foul, and the first light filthy to be crossed by such sweet music. Rags? New rags for old. I take your tired rags. Rags? Now this is a wonder, I thought to myself, for the man stood six feet four, Tom Brady, and his arms were like tree limbs, hard and muscular. His eyes flashed intelligence. Could he find no better job than this to be a ragman in the inner city? I followed him. My curiosity drove me, and I wasn't disappointed. Soon, the ragman saw a woman, woman sitting on her back porch. She was sobbing into a handkerchief, sighing and shedding a thousand tears. Her knees and elbows made a sad X. Her shoulders shook. Her heart was breaking. The ragman stopped his cart. Quietly, he walked to the woman, stepping round tin cans, dead toys, and pampers. Give me your rag, he said gently, and I'll give you another. He slipped the handkerchief from her eyes. She looked up, and he laid across her palm a linen cloth so clean and new that it shined. She blinked from the gift to the giver. Then, as he began to pull his cart away again, the, the ragman did a strange thing. He put her stained handkerchief to his own face, and then he began to weep, to sob as grievously as she had done, his shoulders shaking, yet she was without a tear. This is a wonder, I breathed to myself, and I followed the sobbing ragman like a child who cannot turn away from mystery. Rags, rags, new rags for old. In a little while, when the sky showed gray behind the rooftops and I could see the shredded curtains hanging out black windows, the ragman came upon a girl whose head was wrapped in a bandage, whose eyes were empty. Blood soaked her bandage. A single line of blood ran down her cheek. Now the tall ragman looked upon this child with pity, and he drew a lovely yellow bonnet from his cart. Give me a rag, he said, tracing his own line on her cheek, and I'll give you mine. The child could only gaze at him while he loosened the bandage, removed it, and he tied it to his own head. The bonnet he set on hers, and I gasped at what I saw. For with the, with the bandage went the wound. Against his brow it ran a darker, more substantial blood, his own. Rags, I take old rags, cried the sobbing, bleeding, strong, intelligent ragman. The sun hurt both the sky now and my eyes. The ragman seemed more and more to hurry. Are you going to work, he asked the man who leaned against the telephone pole. The man shook his head. The ragman pressed him, do you have a job? 
Are you crazy? sneered the other. He pulled away from the pole, revealing the right sleeve of his jacket, flat, the cuff stuffed into his pocket. He had no arm. So said the ragman, give me your jacket and I'll give you mine. So much quiet authority in his voice. The one-armed man took off his jacket, so did the ragman, and I trembled at what I saw, for the ragman's arm stayed in its sleeve. And when the other put it on, he had two good arms, thick as tree limbs, but the ragman had one. Go to work, he said. After that, he found a drunk lying unconscious beneath an army blanket, an old man hunched, wizened, and sick. He took that blanket and wrapped it round himself, but for the drunk he left new clothes. And now I had to run to keep up with the ragman, though he was weeping uncontrollably, bleeding from the forehead, pulling his cart with one arm, stumbling for drunkenness, falling again and again, exhausted, old, and sick, yet he went with terrible speed. On spider's legs, he skittered through the alleys of the city, this mile and the next, until he came to its limits, and then he rushed beyond. I wept to see the change in this man. I hurt to see his sorrow. And yet I needed to see where he was going in such haste, perhaps to know what drove him. The little old ragman, he came to a landfill. He came to the garbage pits. And I waited to help him and what he did. But I hung back, hiding. He climbed a hill. With tormented labor, he cleared a little space on that hill. Then he sighed. He laid down. He pillowed his head on a handkerchief and a jacket. He covered his bones with an army blanket. And he died. Oh, how I cried to witness that death. I slumped in a junked car and wailed and mourned as one who has no hope because I had come to love the ragman. Every other face had faded in the wonder of this man and I cherished him, but he died and I sobbed myself to sleep. I didn't know, how could I know, that I slept through Friday night and Saturday and it's night too but then, on Sunday morning, I was wakened by a violence. Light, pure, hard, demanding, slammed against my sour face. And I blinked, and I looked, and I saw the first wonder of all. There was the ragman folding the blanket most carefully, a scar on his head but alive. And besides that, healthy. There was no sign of sorrow or age, and all the rags that he had gathered shined for cleanliness. Well, then I lowered my head and trembling for all that I had seen. I myself walked up to the ragman. I told him my name with shame, for I was a sorry figure next to, to this man. Then I took off all my clothes in that place, and I said to him with dear yearning in my voice, Dress me. He dressed me. My Lord, he put new rags on me, and I am a wonder beside him. The ragman, the ragman, the Christ. Let's pray. We come to you 
empty. Pulling behind us death and guilt and shame. Dress us, God. Dress me. Take my clothes and put yours on me. God, I pray, Lord, that we would rest in you. That we would stop fighting you. That we, we would know how much you love us in the exchange that you desire to make to put our burdens and our sorrows and our sins and everything on Christ at the cross. The payment price, the redemption made for us. Oh God, wake us up to that priority, our source of life. Clothe us. Not with more money or prestige or relationships. Clothe us. God, with your glory and your love. Oh, friends, if you don't know Christ this morning, would you trust in him? Once and for all and finally, would you trust in him with every head bowed and every eye closed? If you, if you want to trust in him and you want to be prayed for, would you raise your hand for me so that I can see you and pray for you? Thank you for those hands. Thank you. Thank you. Oh God, I pray, Lord, help us to trust you. You know our past. You know our sorrows. You know our brokenness. But Jesus Christ died for sinners like us so that we might have your life. And it's forgotten. Everything that we've ever done maybe should bring us guilt or shame, is gone. It's buried in the deepest sea, or where it says. It's put on Christ, and we get your glory. Old things have passed away. All things have become new. Oh, thank you, God. You crown us with crowns. You crown us with glory. You call us your sons and daughters. You make us new. Thank you for this, God. We ask you now, Lord,